Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Raji Rabbit and Friends Podcast. So, it's been a while since I went live. It's been a while since I've turned this microphone on. A lot has happened. Uh, moved to a new location. I have also moved out of that location temporarily due to a strange flood. Uh, I have now picked up a new microphone so I can record on the go, which will increase the daily or, well, weekly regimen of this show, as I plan to put it out once a week. This is the new version of the Raji Rabbit podcast, and we're going to kick it off this week by jumping right into something really cool that I recorded. It's a keynote from the DJ Expo 2017 in Atlantic City. This is going to be laid back Luke speaking to a very uh, small audience of people. It was very cool to be in that room. He dropped a lot of knowledge. So aspiring DJs, anybody looking up to laid back Luke, or if you just want to know what is on the mind of somebody uh, that's a world touring DJ uh, and some of the advice he gives people, I definitely recommend sticking around because that interview starts now. Welcome back to the Raji Rabbit Podcast. I thought, well, this is um, this is the early 2000s. You know, we have CD players. What if I could just burn my song on a CD and then take like a, a little CD player and then just hook it up and test it out in between my sets? So I did that uh, from 2001 until 2003. I always brought like this mini squared CD player to test my new productions out. And then I got in touch with uh, with the CDJs got a setup of, of two in my studio, put it on vinyl mode, started mixing, and I thought, wow, this is exactly like the... This the, works. Yeah, the Asshole 1200s. But it, it was so, so revolutionary that a, lo- a lot of like the vinyl uh, purists, but even the people in the crowd were thrown off by it. All of a sudden, well, real DJs don't mix with CDs. You know, that's that's crazy talk. I remember once uh, being at a show in 2003. I we moved uh, the SL 1200s. We put the CDJ uh, set up in there, and I lost half of my crowd because they thought, you know, this is not a, a real DJ. So much of the conversation about what constitutes a real DJ these days, there's there's just a ton of it that goes on and on and on. And all these years after the introduction of digital technology, why are we still having that conversation? Well, I guess because the art is changing and there are a lot of old farts like me still in the industry that know how it was and know how it should be, actually. But it's, it's changing now because there's so, ma- so much new technology, but there's a lot of incompetent people in the DJ Top 100 that call themselves DJs and have no clue what they are doing. Yes, they are good producers, but hell no, they are not DJs. And, and I, I like standing up for that because the art of DJing is, is so precious. It's, it's brought me so much joy and, and just the, the interaction of a crowd or like building up a night or like coming to this one peak where you grab all of the crowd. They have no clue what, what that's, that's about. And you're a bit of an anomaly because you started as a producer back in the day, whereas back in the day it was usually DJs who learned how to produce. Yeah. So people like Carl Cox were known for their DJ. Exactly. The fact that he started in tech and he did all these other things, 
that's secondary. He's, he's known as a DJ. Now, you have kids who learn how to make music, and then they learn how to DJ. Yep. It's a little ass backwards, isn't yep. it? Well, as some of the older Dutch DJs have called me the, the first ones of the new generation, where I was a producer first that learned DJ. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, um, so now you're a brand ambassador for Denon DJ. What does that entail? Well, it entails uh, me being part of the team. I'm very proud to be part of development where I am the on-field festival tester and a club tester and, you know, someone with, with a huge library that I have. I, I carry about 4,000 tracks on my USB and it's just a different situation and um, I, I know what the professional DJs desire and I can give them that feedback and also um, before we even started flirting it was me getting a getting a shot at just just feeling the players and testing them out and uh, see if I really was into them see if I really would think it was a su superior product than what was out right now and if it wasn't a superior product, I would have never done it, but it's incredible and there's just so many options uh, coming in the future that will blow us all away. So what's in your gear rider? Hello? Hey. So what's in your gear rider? What is your uh, gear setup now? So my gear setup now is uh, three uh, Denon SC5000 uh, players. I could uh, I could essentially uh, get four, obviously, but I like having the option of the layering on one of the players, um, just because I think it's such an awesome feature. It's it's still a very scary feature to have like two decks on the one deck, um, but so essentially I moved from four players to three players now, and I have the the Denon uh, XI uh, eight hundred mixer in between as well, and that's pretty much it. Give me a second. So, you're also very well known as a talent scout. You've found some of the biggest uh, hit-making DJs and producers uh, in the last 10 years. Give some of the people out there an idea of what you're looking for in a music maker, in a DJ or producer. What impresses Laidback Lou? Well, obviously it needs to be uh, top stuff. And I... Sadly enough, I'm part of this industry as well, and the industry focuses much on the production side of things. So I was just talking to a, to a local DJ here that has been DJing for over 20 years, but it's just starting to produce, and he's asking me how to get his name out there internationally. And sadly enough, it's all about getting your name out there through tracks. It's, it's just the fastest way. I mean, you could be the most amazing DJ locally, but to, to try and book you on this one festival in Croatia, we could put you there prime time or, you know, whenever, but you will attract like three people that know you. And so it doesn't make sense, even though you're a, an amazing DJ, even if there's like 10,000 people and we put you there, probably 8,000 will walk away or, or, or even more just to go and see the producer that's playing on the other side. Um, so that's that's a first. Um, then there has to be like a like a humble, willing, and learning mentality, uh, because there's there's just going to be. Well, so you see me sitting here, but behind me is like a huge team, a team that keeps me in check as well. So whenever I finish a track, I'll need to 
let my team hear it as well, and they'll often come with feedback, and I could easily say, damn it, I pay you guys, you put this out right now. But it's a team effort where they give me feedback, and I'll listen to them, and I'll adjust the track accordingly. And this is, this is for young talent as well. We can't, we can't have like a cocky kids coming up. What's the most important thing about running a label in 2017? I mean, so much has changed in the last five years, not just 10 years. But how do you stay afloat? How do you keep people attuned to what you're doing? Well, it's a tricky one. And especially with all the changes, uh, we, we, we've been maneuvering. So we, even two years ago, it wasn't really that important to be on Spotify. And I, re I remember sitting there with uh, Dimitri Vegas and like Mike, and they were like asking me like how I was running my things, and I was like, dude, Spotify is the next big thing. You should focus on that. And they had like you know a, a hundred followers on Spotify, and they were, are you are you are you sure is that you know it's not going to be like SoundCloud or iTunes or Beatport? And I'm like, no, go away from it. Go on to Spotify, and and yeah, so now they're scoring big on Spotify. Um, but it changes every year, and you, you very much need to be aware of that. And again, um, it's not a, a one-guy effort. I have about eight people working at Mix, Mix Mash Records right now, people that really earned their job, and they, they do an amazing job. And at the end of the day, I'm sure it's all about quality tracks, getting it out there. Yeah, I have a love and hate relationship with my A&R uh, guy going on, because he is so picky. And, uh, you know, sometimes I finish a track and I'm like, yeah, this is it. And I'll let, it, let him listen to it. And he's like, dude, can't do this. <laughs> you got to change this and that. And uh, I hate him for that. But this means everything that comes out is top notch. Well, you got to have quality control no exactly. matter what you do. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your own artistry. You've had some enormous hits as a collaborator. And uh, what's the secret for collaborating with another artist? <laughs> What I think is the wonderful thing about collaborating with uh, another artist is that you have always have someone that that's on your tail. <laughs> so when you make tracks on your own and you know you you skip a day because I don't know you're like busy and doing things, sometimes this this becomes like weeks or months. Whereas if you coll you collaborate with someone, uh, you'll get an email every two days like, hey, did you finish the track or let me do some more uh, to it or if you're uninspired. You know, so it really helps to collaborate with people, and it's nice to learn from uh, other people as well. Let's talk a little bit about Leave the World Behind in particular, because that one had a lot of names on it. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that process and making that track, because that's obviously one of the biggest projects you were ever involved with. Well, uh, that was a result of, uh, of the Swedish House Mafia sessions I used to do every single year with the guys, where I started producing with uh, Steve Angelo first and then it became an annual thing that I would just come by like every fall and and go and make tracks with them for a week. And so this was a session as well as just four of us in the studio for three days putting our own little uh, bits and pieces into the track. So I guess that's why it's a track with so many so many like different elements into it because all of us just like put in our own little thing and uh, for instance, uh, I, w I was the one that did the, the whole like riser effects in there. I was obsessed with that little plug-in back then, which uh, no one ever used. But I remember uh, sitting us uh, sitting in the studio with the guys, and, and I put the, the plug-in on, and we were listening to it rising for three minutes, thinking, you know, this is, this is really endless. It goes like, shoo, 
we were just keeps on going and it never stops. And so we put it in the track. It was, yeah, it was a, it was a very good experience, but a long one as well because I finished tracks in four hours, and Axwell EQs a reverb for four hours. <laughs> and, and he's he's super picky like that, but it, it became a really long session. So how do you resolve issues when you're butting heads with another collaborator? Because obviously we're talking about artistry here, and everybody is very precious about their output and what they do. How do you resolve those issues or work through them? Oh, that's a tough thing. So nowadays, the good thing about collaborating through the internet is that you don't really need to deal with that. So you just send an email, you don't really need to see the face that comes with it. Um, but in the studio with someone, you could come up with the most brilliant melody and then the guy next to you says, I'm not into it. And yeah, how, how to deal with that. And so it's all, always like, the, it's most pleasant if you work with someone that understands you or can maneuver in a way that it still stays positive. And luckily that's always been the case with my collaborations. Um, you've also offered lots of online mentorship to DJ producers. What would be the most useful advice you could give to an up-and-coming DJ producer? Never ever give up on your dream. That's it. So whatever you think of and how, however big you want to aim, that's absolutely fine. Never ever quit on it. The moment you quit, it's gone. Don't ever give up hope. So it might not happen ever, but that you know, then you'll get the whole trip. And often it's, you know, I know it's cliche, but it is really about the journey. Because when you get there, it's like, oh, okay, I'm here. What, what's next? But, um, and it's, I often think it's so sad that people just give up on their hopes and dreams. Because uh, I do think it's, it's for all of us. And I wish all of you and, and everyone the most success in the world. But essentially, and I put this up on my story as well. The biggest battle in your life you get to fight is the one against yourself. You are your own worst enemy. Why be your own worst enemy? You can win. You're allowed to win. Go and have yourself win. And, you know, you can have a bad day, but that doesn't mean you, you should give up. You can have, like, several bad days or bad years. Don't give up. You, you are allowed to get this. So speaking to your level of success, what was the most surprising facet of success? What did you not realize you were getting yourself into? Um, hate. Oh. And, and that's, that's a big thing because uh, I have many F's to give. And um, I am very passionate of what I do. And everything I do um, comes from the heart. And... Uh, I'm always about positivity and helping other people, and then to realize that there are still people hating on you uh, for being successful, for being ignorant, and, and the more successful you get, the more haters you get. And I always thought, you know, uh, if you, if you become, become really famous, you have these, these huge amounts of people that love what you do, but I didn't realize that there, on, the, on the flip side, there was going to be more haters. And I've had this conversation with some other big Dutch DJs, and they say the, the exact same thing. And I ask them, you know, well, why do you get up in the morning? You know, you, you, you got to put your head down and, and work through it. How do you work through it? Um, well, I choose for me. This is basically just what I just said. You know, I, I won't let anyone interfere with, with my plans and my mentality. Although it's hard and I do care, and something in the back of my mind takes the, the hater feedback and, you know, works 
works it in a, in a positive way. But I won't let anyone else dictate my life. This is my life. What's the biggest mistake you see young DJ producers making? Well, the, the biggest one, and I always think this is very funny, and I'll lay it out very simply for you guys. Uh, I just did a seminar on uh, dance fair uh, about this. Hey, Luke, I'm a, I'm a young DJ producer. I just finished my first track. Can you listen to it? And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so what's, what's the use? So this is your first track. You know, fair, fair enough. You, you studied a couple of months, and now you finished something off, and you're really proud of it. But it, it's actually, you, you should see myself as, so I've been doing this for two decades. So I'm like this professional football player that has been doing professional football for 20 years. And now you as a young kid are going to tell me, hey, I, I've just been playing football for six months. Can I try out? So that's exactly how it sounds. So I often say, you know, that's awesome. And I love that you're into music. But you should just continue making music. And technically, I'd love to listen to your 10th track, but preferably to your 100th track. Because when you come to me then, and I love it, I'll sign you. But you're not going to get signed on your first track, ever. So that's the, that's the harsh reality, but it's something you should, you should grasp. Like, if you want attention from a, like a top DJ or top label, you, you got to bring the goods. you got to walk before you run. Exactly. Let's move a little bit into uh, your, one of your other passions. Um, you're very involved in Kung Fu. Uh, how does your involvement in the martial arts impact your artistic life and, and your life when you're, you're not making music? Uh, well, very much so. I actually really needed to, to stay successful and to stay out of the stress and to keep grounded. And I've had a, a life without the Kung Fu uh, as a musician and as a DJ, and it was very stressful. Uh, going to after parties, getting wasted, and having your emotions go from, from highs to lows and ups and downs. And um, yeah, it can really just, especially when you're down and you, you get hate comments or setbacks, it can, can really get to you. So a healthy life and a healthy mentality really keeps that in balance. And um, yeah, whatever type of work, obviously sitting in a studio all day or like traveling or like partying uh, just really hurts the body and uh, essentially your mentality as well. So what's the difference between prepping for a big <laughs> festival slot and prepping for a world kung fu competition? Oh boy. See, um, I don't get nervous anymore to perform in front of 50,000 people. Even if there's a live stream that, uh, you know, goes by the millions, I don't really care. I just go in and do my thing. It's because I do so many shows and I've done so for many, many years. It's fine. I'll just wing it. But for like a Kung Fu World Championships in front of like three judges, this is, this is terrifying for me. It's just maybe probably if I, if I do it more, I, I just compete like once a year because of my schedule. If I do it more, uh, I, uh, I would be less nervous. But it does remind me of the days when I started DJing where I was so nervous that I couldn't put the needle on the record and I'll, I, I would just like drop it in the middle somewhere and then just rewind it <laughs> to the beginning. And I remember this feeling of, oh, I have a show this weekend, um, but I'm so nervous. 
so nervous it feels like someone's going to kill me in the weekend. I would get up like in a puddle of sweat every single night thinking, I have a show this weekend. Uh, so luckily that went away um, with like two years, three years of performing. And the turntables don't kick back at you. Oh, well, yeah, I guess, well, the thing is, uh, whenever I compete, I can't do, like, the full contact thing. Luckily enough, um, I'll, I'll just be there on the mat on my own, like, swinging my weapons. Pretty similar to DJing, I guess. Let's move a little bit into uh, the unique uh, culture of uh, the Dutch dance music scene. Um, I've been going to the Amsterdam Dance Event since 2005, and... It's sort of amazing. If you ever get a chance to go to the Netherlands, Amsterdam is an amazing city, not only for dance music, but just it's an amazing city. Um, why are the Dutch so engaged in electronic dance music? Where does that come from? Why, are, why is a country so relatively small, so incredibly successful in this? There's a couple of factors. Uh, so we were very early to jump into the whole like house music scene, uh, which ironically enough started in America. and. Uh, we took it in Europe and, and we were jumping on that high. Well, that's what we do. We, we make something and somebody sells it back to us. Yeah, yeah. that eventually happened. And I'm happy it did, by the way. Um, but then again, uh, most Dutch people, as an um, integral part of the community, are very much entrepreneurs. <laughs> we often get compared to like Jewish people because we're just so into our money and businesses and networking and this is something that comes naturally to us but combine that with like a very much of like a amical atmosphere so all us Dutch DJs whenever we come across each other we hang out we know each other we're friends and we're just like a like a big crew of, uh, of people that that make it work and of course I think that's also one of the natural connections between New York City and Amsterdam because New York City if you didn't know was New Amsterdam so the very entrepreneurial spirit that goes on in Holland is the very same thing that fuels New York City. So there is a, a natural connection there. Yeah. Um, with EDM still on a high note, why do you think America finally came around to this music the way that the Europeans always have? It took us a while I know. to really have these festivals, to have the music on the radio, to have the younger generation uh, rank that as their principal music that they love. Well, I was... Um I was happy to say I was uh, very much uh, like there when it happened. I was actually making music with David Guetta in the studio when he got a call from uh, Interscope where, it's, where they said uh, Dr. Dre wanted to make music with him. And I was like, wow, this must have been 2007. I was like, whoa, it's really happening in the States. So it had to do with a couple of things. So for instance, Fetty Legrand's uh, Put Your Hands Up Detroit that went crossover and caught uh, Will I Am's attention. That was 2006. Right? Yeah. And, but Will I Am uh, went to Ibiza to go and to, to see this type of music. And I remember Timberland coming there. And, and after he made that uh, the track with uh, Justin Timberlake, the Sexy Back, and you could clearly hear the dance music uh, influences in there. So it was just bound to happen. And in the Netherlands, we had this Dutch sound going off, which, where we combined rappers with the dance music. This was going on in, in 2006 already. David Guetta got to hear that and see that, and he was like, this is the next big thing. And it was just in our country. So um, when, when Interscope hooked him in, yeah, he brought it to the radio, basically. And, and there it was. Um, so 
you've been coming to America for a long time. What were your impressions uh, the first time of the club and festival scene as opposed to what you see these days? So my first American show was in uh, 1997. I played for um, uh, the party, the warehouse parties. I don't know if the, they had the same name, but Satellite Records in New York organized them. Big warehouse parties. Sure, Brooklyn. Yeah. So I, I played there, and but this was underground. And it struck me that uh, America had these alcohol laws for kids under 21, but yet all these teenage kids were doing a hell of a lot more than something <laughs> else. And I was so surprised by that. And um, But this was very much an underground scene. I remember the American rave scene. I was just so in awe with it. It was just like so, such a typical, like, clicky type of thing where everyone was wearing the super wide pants and, and teddy bear backpacks and neon swinging stuff. And uh, it, was, it was incredible times. Way different than when it went crossover. I remember playing in Las Vegas, one, one of my first shows in Vegas in 2007, and people were just requesting me to play uh, Britney Spears and hip-hop. And I was like, this, this is not gonna happen. <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> and then slowly it changed uh, into what it is now, and uh, I'm so happy it did. Are there any downsides to the popularity, that, especially in America now? Oh yeah. Well, one of the biggest downside I thought was how much of a money hunger, fame based, like it, it just got really ugly. Like, are oh, so many bandwagoners that are in it for all the wrong reasons. Do you mean the artists, or the fans, or the brands that are attached everything, to themselves? Everything. Just such a big multi million dollar industry. Whereas, you know, it, it was so much more real and more passionate back in the day. And I never anticipated that. I wanted, always wanted to have my music become the biggest. So um, I made the switch from techno to house music uh, in the early 2000s. And some people um, blame me for making that switch uh, to, to make money. But what they don't know is that I, I was actually very successful as a techno DJ. I was making really good money. And I just had to switch for artistic reasons. Now, the big money machine back then was trance, so if I was in it for the money, I would have just switched to trance. And trance is still doing very well. Yeah, trance, I, I mean, trance now came back to, to you know, their, their own roots. And, um, well, trance was, back in the day, was so big, you had a lot of, like, these, these ugly names coming up and, and making ugly hit records. And so I always wanted my EDM to become the biggest, but I never anticipated it to become that ugly. So before we open up uh, to the audience for questions, I just want to ask, Luke, what's next for you? What should we be looking for in the coming months and in 2018? Well, I'm working on a new album, and specific, specifically an album full of uh, collaborations. Uh, so number one, I think it's fun to do, but number two, there's going to be a lot of collaborations with new names, new kids, new talents that I want people to, to hear of. And uh, yeah, so that's something I'm really looking forward to. And I'm very happy to, to be uh, in, the, in the development of the Denon team. We have a ton of new developments coming up where I'm super excited about. And uh, you can definitely come to the Denon booth tomorrow, which opens at noon. I'm going to open this to the floor. We only have time for a handful of questions, so I'm going to play Phil Donahue here. Somebody come to the front here. Here we go. 
Please uh, tell us your name, where you're from, and please ask a question and don't make a speech. Thank you. <laughs> hey, what's going on, Luke? My name's Eric. So I'm from Saratoga Springs. It's a tinier town up in New York. So my question is, you, you talked about you only had enough money for one 1200 at the time. I'm kind of in the same boat right now. I have enough money to maybe invest in one deck of something, maybe a mixer. It might be pieces as I go. For someone who doesn't have a huge budget but wants to be planning on the equipment that you need in order to be considered a professional, what's your recommendation if you have one? Well, uh, yeah, this might be an unsatisfying answer, but I would, would always try a, a MIDI controller because it's, uh, it's kind of similar to the real thing, and it's affordable, and it's just all in one. You, know, you get two decks in one mixer, and, um, and you can get going. Question. Hey, lay back, Luke. My name is Dan Shiver, DJ Dan Dan, out of Patterson, New Jersey. Way! Jersey in the building! <laughs> um, Tremaine knows uh, I've asked a question to all, and I just want to get your perspective as a being known for EDM. Um, I know you know about Soulful House, you know, Frankie Knuckles and that kind of stuff like that. Um, just wondering what's your perception of that? Why doesn't that get the love, and what's your opinion on that? I love it, and I. Uh, I uh, I went to Body and Soul back in the day and uh, danced to this, and I, I love all that stuff, masses of work, and um, I do, but I do feel that, you know, obviously, number one, it's not festival music. It's not something that the youth can play and, and rebel against their parents. It's like, oh, oh, we hear nice jazzy riffs, and, you know, this all sounds like really sexy, so I, th I think that's one of the things, but... I do feel it's like a, like a good mind where, you know, the older you get, the more you fall in love with it. And there's certainly a market there for, like, the older generation of, of DJs and crowd to enjoy that. And as I mentioned before, there are a lot of parties like that still going on in New York. David? Thank you, Jim. Uh, two things, Luke. One, huge fan. Um, if you've been on the road for a few weeks or a few months at a time and you're starting to get, you know, kind of burnt out and you're constantly around people, constantly around events, parties... How do you handle not getting burnt out? Yeah. And also, uh, I've reached out to your PR agency multiple times about trying to have you on my FM radio show. Uh, we're syndicated all throughout the country, online, FM. Uh, how can I get you on my show? Cool. I mean, you can always talk to Naomi there. She's from my management. Um, and yeah, not getting burned out is, is just to take care of yourself. So uh, if, if you're... Uh, fed up with being around people, go and have your private time. And I, for instance, never hang out at shows anymore because I really need to have that time of rest. To just like be back in my hotel room, either start a new track or just to watch a movie or something. But you really need to have that step back. Um, one thing that keeps me really sane on the road is my naps. Every time I need to go into like a new situation or e even if it's a workout or, or a performance, I always take a 30-minute nap before to re-energize, and then I'm all ready. Uh, one big thing is you, you need to envision the situation that's about to come. So if you're in your hotel room, you know you'll have a show. You, you know there's going to be people coming at you. There's going to be loud music. There's going to be lights. There's going to be indecisiveness of what, you, what you're going to play. There's going to be sweaty temperatures. But if you anticipate all of this up front, then when you go into it, it's, it's far more, far less stressful than, than going in as a black. Right. Thank you. Another question. How you doing? Hi. Back, Steve Brady. 
Uh, when you're talking about finding your sound, does it have to be synth-based or can it be the character of your track by the way you tune your kicks, by the way you EQ your reverb or how you process your vocal? Like, what is the true definition of finding your sound? Look at you sounding all technical. I love it. <laughs> so, um, finding your own sound doesn't really have to do with technique. I mean, it, it could be like, so for instance, uh, Skrillex found his one trick and that worked for him and Afrojack as well. Um, if you're lucky, you come across that and you can use that and, and, and uh, use that to your advantage. But I think, in my case, for instance, everyone is unique. So if you can put something that's yourself in there, no one is you. So if you put something that's intrinsically yourself in there, you'll always sound unique. Thank you. Question. Hello, Luke. You, may, you mentioned how uh, important it is that you have your team behind you. Well, when you're starting out and you're young, I mean, it's hard to get a photographer to tag along with the gig for free. So what was your team like in the beginning? What was your team like as you grew? And how is your team now versus as a paid team? What a good question. I should make a vlog about that. Um, We're recording this. Yeah. So, uh, no, when I started out, it was just very simple. It was just uh, me <laughs> at first. Then I got a little bit known and a bit more hype and a little bit more successful. And then it was me and my manager. And she did a great job with hooking me up with a booking agent. And then I started to get more DJ shows. And then we needed some PR. And only the recent years, it's important to bring a photographer, which I only do once a month for the Instagram and, and whatnot. Um, but it, organically, it, it goes from there. Often I see kids already having like the whole logo set up and the Instagram account and everything, and that's that's all good and great. But but then you listen to their tracks and it sounds like shit. So you know it should be about the talent first, and and then the social media and, and the team. Question. My name is H. B. Monty from New York, songwriter, artist. Quick question for you, two parter. Yep. So one. How do you go about selecting top lines, or where do you go to find your top lines? And two, what's your thought process behind that when you are picking the right track for your particular project? Awesome. Yeah, so I, uh, I run my own publishing company as well. And usually they, uh, they listen to all the demos of the top line writers, and uh, what just uh, speaks to me, really. So I, uh, I'm very picky with the songwriting because I, I, uh, I've done this myself for a while since I was a kid. And um, I, can, I can hear if something is a hit or not. And if it is, then I'll work with it. And if it's not, then we'll just move along. As simple as that. Do you go through different uh, other publishing companies or friends? Which, which... Yeah, so my uh, publishing company has a relationship with uh, Cloud9. Uh, and yeah, they, they have a lot of singers, songwriters. And, uh, you know, they hold their writers, camps, and everything. And... Uh, yeah, it's just a very luxurious position that I'm in that I get to pick a lot of top lines, yeah? Cool. Thank Another you. Question. Hey, Luke, as we spoke earlier, um, thanks for the advice, by the way. My pleasure. Uh, audio with D DJ Italo. Question I have, and I'm sure a lot of people in this room want to know. You started out with Pioneer, and the transition to this, how can you compare the difference, and where do you see this going compared to Pioneer? Great question, I love it. Um, so the transition or the decision about it is basically comparing an iPhone 3 with an iPhone 7. So, you know, if you get the opportunity, you would pick an iPhone 7, right? That's as simple as that. 
Next question. How's it going, Luke? My name is Justin from Mr. Sammy Cliff, New Jersey. Um, so as a music producer, I noticed that a lot of uh, producers you know, in the industry nowadays are struggling with actually picking an ending point to a production. We get to that 80 to 90% point where it's just like, where do I go from here? How do I end this? Do you have any tips on how to overcome that hump? Absolutely. Well, I did a couple of blogs about that, overcoming like a writer's block and everything. But I think a lot of the young kids get caught up in a lot of technicalities. Like the, the one guy uh, just came with the, like, you know, firing technical questions. What, you, what a lot of people tend to forget, it's, it's the creative process and the joy of the creative process that, that keeps you going. So if you need to EQ a hi-hat for about two and a half hours and still not the, the hi-hat, you completely lost track of the song. Um, so you, you have to keep that first motivation of like, oh, I'm going to make this banger right now. That needs to keep in there. And so what I often recommend uh, people to do is just uh, to have like two-hour sessions, take a half-hour break, then go, in, go into two hours as, as, uh, at, straight after. And you'll see that in that half-hour break, your most brilliant ideas will come up. And when you get back into the studio, you'll get back in with fresh ears and you'll instantly hear, oh my God, that hi-hat was okay and was good. I didn't need to tweak that. So there's a couple of factors there. One more. Marketing question for you. So at the beginning of the year, I started a group called The Hype. And when we were thinking of the name of the band, um, we went on the internet to see if anyone else had it. Nobody had the hype.com, nobody had the hype band.com. Wow. There was a couple SoundCloud the hypes, but they had, you know, old, old five year posts, minimal followers. And so we actually ended up getting uh, soundcloud.com slash the hype. Impressive. And now, uh, about eight months later, um, I'm looking at Spotify and there's the hype. There's, there's a bunch of the hypes. There's some hypes on Spotify. Um, and on SoundCloud and a couple other bands. So, you know, we put a bunch of money into marketing and logos and everything. And so now we're faced with, do we keep the name or do we have, should we get something more unique and, and try to rebrand ourselves? Which would be, you know, we would do it because we believe in ourselves, but I'm kind of looking for some advice on stuff. Well, um, there's a couple of things you can do. You can uh, go to a copyright agency and try to, to get the rights to the name. Have you tried that? So if you, if you can, it's going to be a couple of thousand dollars to, to get the copyright, but then you'll own it. And you can actually tell the, the guys on Spotify, hey, this is our name, you should discontinue. So that's number one. But you can change your name as well. So obviously if, if you're not that famous yet, you can, you can still maneuver. But if you're really stuck on the name, you could, you could like do it very much legally. And yeah, this is just totally like according to the law, where you can own that name and, yeah, just claim it. want to thank everybody for coming out. Please give a big DJ Expo thank you to Layback Luke. We have a panel, 530.